Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lur, and uh, I'm excited to have a good friend of mine, Mr. Clive Bowen, on the line all the way somewhere between London and Oxford today here. Welcome to the podcast, Clive. Marcus, great to hear your voice. Lovely to chat. Yeah, looking forward to uh, really going deep into your stories here done plenty of homework and of course we've had our discussions over the years uh, and we'll you know reconnecting a bit on some of those stories here as well and, and but let's start with where you are i think you're in a 450 year old house somewhere there as i said between london and oxford um you know how are things there it's it's perfect the sun is shining it's a clear sunny day with uh you know maybe 20 degrees centigrade outside which for you would be cold but for us it's wonderful yes uh I've recently moved here. It's a, a, a redevelopment of a very, very old house. Uh, so everything is perfect inside. I love, uh, I love it. Yeah, great. I love that. What a beautiful place to be. Well, I'm calling from Bangkok, Thailand. So, um, But before we go into the details here, let me sort of quickly give an introduction of who you are. Um, and again, it will obviously go through your career, but most people would recognize you now, of course, being the founder and managing director of Apex Circuit Design. Um, mm -hmm. And this is really where we're going to be spending a lot of time in of all this cool stuff you guys are doing, all the way, of course, mm -hmm. what's happening in Miami with Formula One. Uh, you know, but what like we always do, we really dig first into how you got there. And, and you really have a very interesting and colorful career, I would describe it that way how you started and of course and how you ended up uh, getting where you are now so let's start right there um you know coming out of school i guess as a mechanical engineer you mm -hmm. ended up at rolls royce which again sounds all very exotic and of course amazing brand um how did that all happen and, and tell us a bit about the the early part of your career there well, uh, I think I was lucky. I uh, I studied mechanical engineer at Portsmouth Polytechnic. It's now a university, but in those days it was still very much a technical school. Mm -hmm. And um, what you do in your final year, at the beginning of your final year, is you start applying for positions. And there's a well-established system in the UK, it still exists, where manufacturers or employers make clear who they're looking for or the type of people they, they want to employ that year or the next. Right. And I put in applications to, I think, about six companies. I had four final interviews and I had two job offers. And one of those was with Rolls-Royce Aerospace, not the car company. Right. And the other one was with Lucas Gerling, who was the, the, um, the braking arm, so automotive car brakes, um, but the arm of the Lucas Group. Lucas is, uh, or at least was, very famously one of the the automotive industry's tier one suppliers for electronics and and uh, and then subsequently braking systems. And I thought that Rolls Royce would look better on my CV, yeah. so I decided to choose them on that basis. And that basis alone, it was really quite. Um, well, I, I think that was a fairly uh, easy choice there. I think anyone that, that name on on any CV will look pretty good. Uh, did you ever drive one of those uh, it, during your time there? You had a chance? To no, gosh, no, that? no, no. You see, though, because years earlier the the company had split, and so Armstrong Sidley, I think, was the owner of the brand that was the car company. Oh, okay. Uh, had split out the aerospace division. So I was right. based in, in Bristol, in the southwest of oh, England. Okay. 
And I did my graduate training there, which I hadn't realized at the time I took the job on, was probably the best there was for young uh, engineers. Right. And, and then because I wanted to move into the commercial part of the business, and because I had a mechanical engineering degree, I couldn't get into their sales or marketing team because uh, Rolls-Royce had a policy back then at least of only putting people with economics or marketing degrees into the sales team. Got it. So I was put into the raw material purchase department and I learned as glamorous so as much. that sounds. <laughs> Do you know what? It does sound really dull, but it was a brilliant, brilliant first job to have because I was taught about contract law. I was taught, taught about uh, procurement and the methodology for procurement, the way you manage the supply chain, how you ensure or assure quality Yes. by uh, checking the quality control procedures of your suppliers. And also, just by virtue of the fact that we had suppliers all around the world, I had a, an interesting communication with people left, right and centre. I didn't, in fact, travel overseas with roles, but I did travel internally in the UK a lot because we still had a steel industry in those days. Uh, uh, I love it. It, it. it has sort of flashbacks to my uh, how I started. I, I did In Germany, we have this thing called... Um, sort of a, like an industrial apprenticeship, basically, right? For you, you work two and a half years in a company, but it's the same time you study. And and I ended up working again with a very, very industrial business there, and uh, and had similar experiences. So worked in procurement, worked in all those sort of things. And you, like I said, it's, I think it's a great place to learn, um, especially when in you know we're talking about here. This is sort of later '80s, right? Where you know this is really you're a young man, and I was at around a similar time there. Uh, now, we don't want to spend too much time there because there's so much more interesting things in your career there. Um, so let's quickly kind of move a bit up here. Um, you ended that up, then up with a company called PPM. This was sort of a more on the commercial side already, right? It was sort of the next level for you to get in there before you then ended up, of course. And that led to the next job, I guess, to some degree uh, with the group in Saudi. So why don't we quickly That's cover right. that a bit, um, you know, how you learn, how you move from Rolls-Royce to PPM and then to Haldir. Well, the, it, it's, it's not that unusual a career path. I, I wanted to move upwards in terms of opportunity. I, I could see that with Rolls-Royce, though it was utterly brilliant as an employer, it was a Levithian. It was like, being a member of a crew of a super tanker, things moved slowly or mm. changed direction slowly. Right. And I wanted, I was hungry, I was ambitious. And so when a former uh, classmate of mine who'd gone straight to what was then known as Wright Machinery uh, called me up and said, We're looking for somebody, are you interested? I <laughs> dropped everything and went. So I became a technical salesman for this company called Wright Machinery that was subsequently renamed PPM years later. I see. And um, they specialized in making equipment for the food industry from conveying, packaging, and some processing too. And their, their real shtick was, was the, the, the snack food industry, which I didn't know at the time was enormous. Mm. And uh, anyway, um, it was – a perfect next job because I was given far, far more responsibility than perhaps I should have been. I was extremely fortunate to have been given a territory to look after that had been ignored by Wright for many years, which was the Middle East. Middle East, yeah. And it was a, you know, it was a perfect example of low-hanging fruit. I, I arrived in places like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait to meet people who were effectively waiting for someone like me to turn up and say, 
here are solutions to your questions. Right. And it was great. Yeah, and I can imagine the huge learning, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I made a lot of good friends as well as, as customers in that region. Everything from the Halawani family who lived at a fortress at the top of the hill just outside Amman in Jordan hmm. to Ahmed al-Ghamdi, who became my, my boss ultimately uh, in Saudi Arabia. People who I still keep in touch with 20, 30 years later. And it was whilst I was working with Wright that I started to realize that my own competence, if you could call it that, was in solving problems, identifying and then solving problems. Hmm. So if a customer was saying, right, I want to make a factory to produce Sunsilk shampoo on license for Unilever, I'm going to pay X to buy all of this production equipment. What else do I need? And they would come to me and I would be helping in terms of understanding the space requirements, the building requirements, the air conditioning requirements, the power and the utilities, the planning requirements for, for the build of the factory, okay. the infrastructure to, to the site and all the rest of it. And bizarrely, that's almost exactly what we do today, 30 right. years later in a right, right. different field. So whilst you say mine is an unusual career path, it's actually not. All that's happened is the label on the door changed. Yeah. And I, I learned things that stand me in good stead today in terms of feasibility and feasibility modeling, understanding a market, and then ensuring that you've got all the key stakeholders who you need to have on your side, on your side. Yeah. No, no, now as usual, you know, when you start listening to these stories, it, it makes complete sense. And I, you know, and, and anyone who's listening or will be listening, uh, you know, will see that pass of what exactly what you're doing now, which we obviously get to later. But before we go there, is, I mean, again, we're talking about 1988 to about 2091. You were with them for three years. So this is really, you know, early days here and you running around the Middle East, which is exotic in the current world. And I can, you know, only imagine at that time um, even more. Just give us some interesting stories of what's happening when uh, when a young man there runs around the Middle East at that time. Very interesting that um, you ask that, because when I went to places like Dubai for the first time, it was 1987 right. and Dubai was just beginning to accelerate and accelerate hard, but it was starting from the base that most of the Middle East was at at the time, which was a lot, <laughs> a lot of beach in the case of of Dubai. Yeah. So I remember I used to stay at the Hilton Hotel, which was which is now the convention center or the trade center, and it was at the end of the Sheikh Zayed Road. The Sheikh Zayed Road was a single carriageway road that went from there down to Abu Dhabi. And about four kilometers or five kilometers away, there was a series of five apartment blocks which had been built for Gulf Air aircrew and cabin crew. And between the Hilton Hotel and those five uh, apartment blocks, there was nothing. nothing yes. And that is the main skyline that everybody thinks of today mm -hmm. as, as Dubai. So the place just exploded. It was the most amazing thing to see. It was also quite frustrating because every year from 1987 to about 2004, I would get lost because the road <laughs> network changed every single time I was there. I know I've landed in Dubai over 500 times over the years. Wow. And so that's a, that's a feral number of times to get lost in a hire car. Yeah. 
Amazing. Uh, it's it's like I said. You know, obviously, I came to Asia in the sort of later part, of the mid '90s, and that was already you know wild west here, wild east. Uh, but the Middle East was no different, right? In, in these early days, it's you know not what people see there now. Um, but let, you know, let's stick to the Middle East for a bit, you know, because obviously, after right machinery, you ended up at Haldir, uh, working mm-hmm. for a Saudi company. Again, you know, it's it's already it sounds exotic now, but uh, this is again we're dealing now in the '90s here, right? You were there within mm-hmm. nine years, working mm-hmm. with a with a big Saudi group. Um, again, let's let's talk a bit about what you did there first, and then of course a little bit about this, you know, the culture and 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 doing what you do, right? And and again, the lessons that you learned out of that. That's actually a nice nice segue uh, because let's start with the first question or the last question first. What I learned in the Middle East and specifically in Saudi Arabia is that business is based on relationships mm. and and how you manage yourself with somebody from a different culture, right. how you under promise and over deliver, which is a mantra I have lived by forever. Mm-hmm. And we had a customer who was based initially up in Tabuk, which is right in the north of Saudi Arabia. It's just off the, the border with uh, with Jordan. Okay. And I was invited to go and, and meet this family, and, and I went up. And, and that was quite an adventure in itself. I had to fly into Jeddah and then caught a regional flight that went via Medina, which is one of the two holy places mm-hmm. in, in Saudi Arabia. And as a result of that, I wasn't allowed off the aircraft. So I stayed on board the, the aircraft, and the only other occupant of that aircraft was a goat that was tethered next to me <laughs> on, on the line of, of, of seats. And then uh, the plane filled up again, and we took off and went up to Tabuk. And in those days, most of the Saudi airline pilots were ex-RAF pilots, and they still flew around the place as if they were in their tornadoes or their, oh, wow. their Spitfires or whatever it was, which made the flights quite entertaining. So you, your final approach to an, aircraft, to an airport, you come down and they'd do a bank turn, which felt like it was 90 degrees, and, and the plane would literally just come level before it banged down on the runway. It was great fun. <laughs> okay. And um, and so I arrived in Tabuk, and I was met by uh, this chap, Ahmed, who I'd never met before, but we'd spoken on the phone. And, and in those days, the way you communicated formally was with telex. Yep. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. And uh, and so we were sending telex messages back and forth. It was long before fax machines or computers, really. Right. And um, and he took me to a hotel, and he said, I'll pick you up, and we'll we'll have a meeting, and then we'll have supper. We got on well, and this client wanted to buy equipment from Wright Machinery, and so we, we negotiated a deal. And it would have been, it was, in fact, one of the largest deals that company had ever done. It was worth about, if memory serves me correctly, it was about £3 million of supply, mm-hmm. maybe four, actually. Um, and in 1987, that's that was quite a lot. Yeah. And... He, after a while, started to uh, get a bit agitated about the cash costs. And he said, look, I, I, I want to pay you, but I want to pay you over time. Would you accept that? And I said, well, we can't. That's not the way that we operate. We're, we're not a bank. Mm. Um, but let me talk to our bank and see what we can do. And we had a very good manager based in London who, when I told him, that we had a client who was prepared to create an irrevocable confirmed letter of credit. So that's a good start because it means that it's a document that can be agreed to and and honoured by a bank in London Hmm. that would be paying 
eight stage payments over four years, each at six-month intervals, in US dollars. And he said, right, okay, well, what we need to do first is we need to discount that those letters of bills of exchange. So that's a process called forfeiting, which apparently Napoleon invented as a mechanism to pay for his military campaigns hundreds of years ago. All right. Then once you've discounted those bills you've got a single payment that comes out in US dollars. But because it was in US dollars, we also then had to have a future option on the currency sure. so that we knew that we were protected. So we had to then have a transaction to another bank, and then we transferred to our bank. And blow me down, it worked. There was a certain amount of, of, of angst as we had to rush these bills of exchange physically by hand from Saudi Arabia to London within a certain window of time, but we did it. Hmm. And when all was said and done, we had a small surplus. We had about £50,000 more in our piggy bank than we expected. Right. So the next time I flew out to Saudi Arabia, I brought with me a cheque for £50,000 and handed it over to Ahmed. And he, he was so astonished by this act of honesty that he said, I know how you work. I like the way that you solve our problems. And I now know that you're not going to, to try to, to take anything you can when the opportunity allows. Will you work for me? Wow. And so that's how the whole thing happened. And mm. when we started on a basis of trust, and I got on really well, not only with him, but his brother and his father. And together we created Haldir as a product and project delivery uh, arm of his, his group, which was called United Factories. Okay. And, um, and we started on his behalf establishing relationships with multiple uh, Big blue chip operators like Johnson and Johnson, Customs International, United Biscuits, Danone. Um, I can't remember the others, but you know mm. what we ended up doing was producing their product in Saudi Arabia and latterly right. in some of the other GCC countries. Okay, which meant that these brand owners were not hindered by import duty, import uh, quotas or, for that matter, product that could be tuned to the local market. I love it. I love it. Now, where were you based in at that time? Were you based, you know, heading back and forth between the UK and Saudi, or you were actually in Saudi during that time? Or how, how can you visualize I, I, that? I didn't want to live in Saudi, right. but I knew I had to be there for extended periods. So the the company rented me a, a very nice house uh, on Sari Street, just off the Corniche, within walking distance of where the new F1 track's going to be. Mm -hmm. And I used to spend a month there and a month in the UK alternating. And, um, and they were very good about that. So I didn't have a, a full residency visa. I always kept my passport, which was quite important to me, because in those days, when you had a residency visa, your passport was given to your sponsor. <clears throat> and if you wanted to leave, he had to give you your passport back. Wow. Like that. Mm, interesting. Now, I'm, uh, just uh, just to, before we now then just jump, jump into into the world of motor racing, because that's pretty much happened then right after it. Um, it just a quick one here. I think your 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 family background is is uh, has something to do with the army, right? And I, if I remember reading somewhere that you traveled a lot, of course, during I guess during your childhood, and so this whole concept of being around and and moving around the world, I guess it was sort of ingrained in you, or came all very natural, right? That's so true. My dad was a soldier in the British Army. Right. Uh, he himself was was part of the whole 
colonial thing in that he was born in India in 1930, went to school oh, wow. in India, and, and he left India the day before partition. And because of his Indian background, when the British Army decided that they were going to create technical arms of the Brigade of Gurkhas, mm -hmm. first in signals and then in engineers, he was one of the young soldiers, young officers chosen to to support that. Really? And so he was, I think, the founding British army officer of 6-7 field squadron for the Gurkha engineers, the brigade of uh, the, oh, yeah, well, the Gurkha engineers. Um, and, and as a result of that, we spent a lot of time as children following him around the Middle East, so Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong. And, and he spent... You call it Malaya. Years. I love that. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, sister was born in Malaya. It says yeah, that's oh, what I get that. I get that. Uh, you, you're a real nomad. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's an it's important part of the story here, really, to, uh, you know, uh, this came all very natural to you. Now, obviously, you had a... There was something about cars and, and racing. You know, not maybe the racing part as much, but definitely the car part. I remember seeing the story about, you know, as a kid, you were already into cars and stuff. So it's somehow, it maybe it's it's not a surprise doing what you're doing now. Um, no, but it took you're right. A, it took a while, obviously, right? You know, as I said, now we're in about the year almost 2000, and all of a sudden, here comes WSR. Um, so let's talk about those five years a bit. Well, there's a little bit before WSR that needs to be mentioned, and that sure. is that um, in 1997, when I was routinely traveling back and forth to the Gulf region, mm -hmm. I met Paul Berger, who I think you know. Yes, Paul was on the podcast. And, and Paul and I cooked up this idea for what became Dubai Autodrome. He, he's an impresario. He, he knows how to put on a show. He's, he, he understands marketing and advertising. Uh, he, he's the guy you go to if you want something to happen in the entertainment field in that region. Right. And I've been introduced to him by the girl who, who subsequently became his wife, Emma, Okay. And, and we just chatted. And by this point, I'd also got involved with motor racing as a hobby. I'd been introduced to people who were to become very influential to me, right. people like Crichton Brown. And through Crichton, I was introduced to some of his friends who included John Hogan. I think you probably know his name. He was the guy who brought tobacco advertising from Philip Morris into McLaren, for example, right. okay. with, uh, with Marlborough. Right. Um, and the other gentleman was with McLaren, right, I believe, or? Well, that was that was Crichton, Crichton Brown, who yeah. who was one of the founding members and owners of McLaren, of McLaren right. in eighty one, um, and he introduced me to Charlie Whiting, who Charlie then became something of a mentor to me. He was enthusiastic about an alternative to to get involved in in design, and he knew what I did professionally, and he could see the parallels between what I did professionally and, and what would need to have needed to be done. Uh, to to deliver on on race venues, right. so when in '97 Paul said to me, "This place needs a racetrack," I said <laughs> to him, "I'll give you a hand. How hard can it be? Uh, let, let's have a go." <laughs> That's and and it took us four years of pitching the idea around and about. And right. you can just imagine you've got Paul with the chutzpah he has to 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 go and knock on doors and say, "You need me. You need us to do this." Right. Uh, and he had me slightly geeky in the background, just making sure that he wasn't over-promising. Right, right, right. And, and we ended up with a 
a commitment being made by Simon Azam at Union Properties, who could see and understand the pitch. The pitch was quite straightforward, and it's not new as an idea, but it was for motor racing. And that was, if you had a parcel of land, quite a big parcel of land, and you put in the middle of it something that's an entertainment destination, you add value to the land around it, and you can start to develop that. And so we pitched the notion of car dealerships, hotels, shopping malls, some residential, not a huge amount, mm. and, and other things. Simon Azam and Union Properties, which was owned by the Emirates Bank, I think, EBD, um, they, he could see that this was a, a cracking opportunity for him, first, to secure land out of Dubai municipality, and second, to have development opportunities that would keep him busy for years to come. Yeah. So he said, look, Prove to me that there's at least $500 million of development value around this racetrack, and I'll give you $100 million bucks because we're making 20% margin these days. And so long as I can make this all wash its face, I'm happy. Yep. So that was, for me, bread and butter. It's what I did for a living back then. And mm. so uh, a business model was created. Paul and I uh, presented it in a form that was easily digestible. We created a, a basic plan that, presented the notion to uh, to union properties and they said right let's make it so right. and they asked us to work with uh, a very fine firm of architects called HOK sport venue and event now yep. known as popular correct and um, long story short we developed Dubai Autodrome and I designed the main circuit and the cart circuit and did the initial master plan, which is not very different to where it is today. What Union Properties did was to quite dramatically increase the percentage of land use for residential, so much so that Motor City, as it's now known, uh, has, I think, 25,000 people living there. It's a town in its own right. right. So that happened as a process before I joined Wright. So I'd already established those relationships. I already had that um, momentum going. So by 1999, I'd met Barbara, my wife, and I realized that a gingerhead, stroppy Scottish lady isn't going to fit into the Saudi Arabian way of doing things. (laughs) So um, we decided that perhaps my time with with Haldir had come to its natural conclusion. and But I'd done it for, by this point, eight or nine years. Yeah, yeah. I loved the job. I loved working for Ahmed Al-Gandhi and his family. But it was time to move on. Mm. So I left there with um, quite a lot of money saved because I'd been well looked after. And, and had a couple of years where I was twiddling my thumbs a bit, trying to work out what I was going to do next. It was a brave move to... to choose to get married and to get unemployed at the same time. But quite quickly, I picked up a consulting role first with Martin Hines at Zipcart and helped him to develop a, a small junior race car, the thing called the Zip Formula. Okay. And, and then, and again, I think it was a contact through Charlie. Charlie Whiting uh, spoke, I think it was Charlie. It was one of Crichton's contacts anyway. He was talking to Dick Bennett at West Surrey Racing. And Dick was saying that he needed somebody commercial to come in and help build the business more. And so I got a phone call. I went and had a, an interview with Dick and, and his partner, Mike, and they offered me a job. And I had six years with 
WSL, which I consider to be charmed. I loved it. I was just at the point where touring cars were moving from super touring to the new BTCC regulations. So all the cars needed to be designed from ground up again. And I got involved in that process mm-hmm. and the homologation of them. In 2001, after they had one season with MG Sport and Racing, they had two cars left over from the previous year. And the marketing team at MG didn't know what to do with them. And I think it was Dick who said, well, why not have a junior team? And and they loved the idea because they thought they could use it to lower the average age of people buying MGs. Mm-hmm. So two young drivers were, were chosen. And I, I felt incredibly honored to be part of the process of choosing. Uh, so we, we selected a young guy called Gareth Howe, who was, was charming, uh, but a little erratic. And the most quietly spoken Northern Irishman you'll ever meet called Colin Turkington, who turned out to be absolute gold, who has subsequently won the British Touring Car Championship a record five times, or is it four times so far? And he's going for the fifth, which would be a record. He's just absolutely the nicest man you'll ever meet. And and he'd, he'd not raced in anything other than autocross up until this point. So we took these guys on and Dick looked at me and he said, we need a team principal. It's going to be you. So (laughs) I went from knowing nothing about running a racing team to having to run a a admittedly junior offshoot of a proper racing team Mm -hmm. um, in five minutes. I love it. I love it. Because your title, I mean, at least what you already have in, in LinkedIn is head of business development. So and that's a really broad term as usual. Right? It could mean anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so at the end of the day, you ended up managing the team, I guess, right? So uh, besides some of the other parts you mentioned earlier, or, or I what managed other parts a, were there? I managed a bit of the team. So I, I was never running the, the, the main touring car team. That was very much Dick and Mike's um, right, okay. thing. Um, but I was asked to, to look after the junior team, which was in and itself a, uh, uh, an exciting time. But I was also looking to bring in revenues for WSR from other sources. And of course, at this point, we, I was still flying out to Dubai to try and get this Dubai Autodrome concept mm-hmm. started. And in 2002, we got the green light to, to start design and engineering. And I needed young draftsmen to uh, to to convert what I was drawing by hand and calculating in longhand, and just to put things into context, the engineering that was required for Dubai Autodrome in 2002 is exactly the same as today. But the design tools just simply didn't exist back then. So it took me three weeks to calculate by hand the long section to to fit the, the form of the land. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I used to do in any event in terms of land planning. Right but to apply the, the FIA guidelines on that. And then I had a young um, technician called Drew McDonald who, who would then convert that into the CAD environment, and we would issue these drawings out. And we were using a piece of software called MX, which had been developed really to design golf courses, you know, the, the 3D yeah. shape and form right, of golf right, courses. Right. And... You know, collaborating with Charlie to, to come up with something that was going to be interesting but also applied his thinking. So Dubai Autodrome was the first race circuit that the FIA approved with a grade one license that had only asphalt runoff. Right. That in itself came with a sting in its tail that we only find out 20 years later, and I'll talk about that in a minute if you want. But the, the track opened in 2004. 
Uh, it's a popular place for for uh, for racing. It's never ho- hosted Formula One, yeah, sadly. Right. Yep. Even though it's it's one of the few racetracks around the world that does have a Grade One license and could. Mm. And equally, it was approved by FIM for an F uh, for a Grade A license for MotoGP. But again, no deal was ever done to to hold uh, a MotoGP event there. Yeah. Its I mean, biggest event is the 24-hour event each year, as you know. Correct, correct. Yeah, and we covered that in quite detail with Paul. Um, you know, and it's, it is sad, right? I mean, if, to some degree, you have this beautiful facility there, um, and really what it meant to be for, which is, I guess, you know, driving at the, you know, bringing in the biggest of the biggest races here, it never happened, right? And it's not, you know, it's hard to explain, really, I guess, uh, why that. You know, what, what, what's your short version of it? Because, you know, so we, we. Well, what's we interesting said- is that there wasn't an imperative to to make it commercially pay its way in the same way as you would need to normally with a race circuit. Because as you, if you remember, the way we sold the notion to Union Properties was it's going to cost $100 million to do this. But I said to Simon Azam, it will never pay for itself. And he took that quite literally. And so he said, fine, this development here, Uptown, I'm going to put $30 million of, of sunk cost for the Autodrome into it. This development here, the green community, I put $25 million into that. And, and all of the other ones, the hotels and the theme parks and, and things that some of which are still... Took margins and everywhere else. Right. So it meant that the 260 hectares of land on the inside that was the Dubai Autodrome site had no invested cost associated with it on the books. It didn't have to justify its existence with a P&L. All it needed to do was to wash its face operationally, which it did and does to this day. And yet, amazingly, there are other things that are worthy of note here. We intentionally made the cart circuit something that was bigger and better than had been done before. We intentionally made sure it was next to the street where all of the shops and the nail bars and the uh, supermarket and the restaurants were going to be built and have subsequently been built. Mm-hmm. And the Dubai Kartrome, that cart circuit, is the busiest and most profitable cart circuit in the world. Wow. It's not just it's not just the best in the region. It's actually the most profitable cart circuit in the world. And it provides an income that sustains so much else within the whole Motor City pro- mm-hmm. uh, precinct. I like that. Nice. Yeah, and, and as I, you know, Paul Paul had some really interesting parts to that as well. Um, now, for you, obviously, from the looks of it, that that is really what then at the end of the day got Apex Circuit Design started, right? Can we can we yeah, use that? Absolutely as, right. It, it yeah, really no, that's was quite your starting right. point, right? So I was at, uh, at WSR by two thousand and six. I could see that I could make a business out of it. Hmm. Dick and Mike were very focused on. Um, on racing, that they are racers through and through, and and weren't particularly inclined to uh, to do what I knew I needed to do, which was to invest in a business in and of itself. Right. So when I said to Dick, "Look, I think the time has come for me to move on," in 2006, I did. Drew joined me. Uh, he was happy to to make the move, and so I had my first employee um, with my own dollar. Yeah. Uh, in 2006, and Apex Circuit Design was born in the yeah. the dining room of my house. And, yeah. and well, let's talk about the, la- the the that 15 year journey which you've been on now since 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, after Dubai, I guess was done and handed over. What was next? You know, what what sort of how did how do you move on from there? Well, the first one was a. F- uh, 
a calamitous decision commercially, but was exactly what I needed uh, to, to get the ball rolling. And that was a project called the Iceland Motor Park. We had been introduced to this client, Vili Williamson, based in Keflavik in, in Iceland, okay. who had this notion of, of doing the Dubai Autodrome all over again, but this time in Iceland. On wow. the, in Iceland. Okay. Um, and it all started well. Again, we worked with HOK Sport mm-hmm. and we got to the point where we started building the cart circuit and then 2008 happened and the, right. the global financial crisis hit everyone hard yeah. and no one or no country more so than Iceland. Uh, if you remember, that was it was almost seen as the, 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 the grain of sand inside the, the, the pearl of that explosive and catastrophic financial uh, meltdown that right. went global. It was two banks in Iceland that started it all off, if memory serves. Oh, really? Wow. Anyway, okay. well, I remember that one. But and, okay, I'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the the project just fizzled out. It had to. But fortunately, yeah. by this point, we had also got a few more uh contracts around and about. Dubai Autodrome was a phenomenal calling card because yep. people could see this was, we were applying the same thinking that you would do with a, a marina with houses around it, a yep. golf course with houses around it, yep. a shopping mall with other shops and, and entertainment facilities around it. Yep. Um, it it's, it's not rocket science, but it had never been done before. Right. And those people who say, you can't put houses next to, next to a racetrack it depends. There are a number of things you can do. The first is that if the selling proposition of your property says, by the way, it's next to a racetrack, a buyer is never going to say to you, oh, but there's a racetrack there. I don't want it there. Yeah. Second is that you can make it appealing to that particular demographic. So Absolutely. in New Zealand, when the Hampton Downs project came along, the, the whole notion of that was that instead of a big grandstand along the start-finish straight opposite the pits, we would put four apartment blocks, each of 20 apartments. Right. And those 80 apartments were sold off-plan to enthusiasts. 60% of the construction cost of that project came out of the profits out of those 80 apartments. Yeah. This was the one, this is in, again, refresh my memory, New Zealand, right? Or which part of the Yeah, the one in New, New Zealand, Zealand, right? Correct. Yeah, it's and amazing. That, I, I remember we had some discussion about that before. Uh, but talk a bit more about it because, again, you know, uh, not everyone will know that much detail. New Zealand is, you know, it's a little bit off the beaten path. Um, so this is obviously, again, this is what – how would you describe that type of racetrack? Because it's, again, not meant for Formula One or, or any of the big races, right? This is really, you know, I don't know. What's the best description? A casual racetrack for supercar I owners call, or how do I you call it a race it? resort. Race I resort. I call it a okay. race resort. I like that. Nice. And, and – and, the Americans have been uh, building these around the U.S. for, for, for years and years and years. And okay. so there's places like Monticello or um, or others. And in Europe, in Europe, there's places like Ascari in Spain. Right. Hampton Downs is different in that it is a proper racetrack, inverted commas, in that it's got a, an FIA license and it hosts uh, FIA-sanctioned events and, and things like uh, V8 supercars. Mm. But it was intentionally set in this beautiful rolling countryside between Auckland and Hamilton right. in a country that shoots way above its weight yeah. in terms of sporting prowess. I, I, I think it's something to do with the air, the food, 
or just their genes, but they produce the best sailors in the world, the best rugby players in the world, and many of the best racing car drivers in the world. Right. And and they are enthusiasts, proper enthusiasts. And so it was those enthusiasts that bought those apartments. It's those enthusiasts who pay to race on a routine basis or to just play on that circuit. Right. And, um, yeah, thank goodness they do because I wouldn't have a job otherwise. Yeah, no, no, I love that. What, when was that project exactly, just sort of time-wise here? To get that was sense? 2007. Seven, uh, so really? we, okay, we, so that was yeah, really we, we started that. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, the work for that was done during the WSR days, mm. but the, it continued beyond. Right. And, uh, and then we did some smaller projects, but they were no less important. We did the Al-Fasan Resort in Abu Dhabi, which had a kart circuit, a motocross track, a wakeboard lake, an equestrian park, a shooting club. I didn't do all of the designs for those right. other bits and bobs, but to have been associated with that and to do the kart circuit design and to be uh, a key part of the master planning team for, for the overall mm. uh, venue was great. And that's on that patch of land on the mainland in Abu Dhabi, directly opposite Yas Island. So this was okay. built before the Formula One track. Right, right. And and we also got the commission to design and build the Bahrainis National Kart Circuit, which was then became the most expensive kart circuit ever built at 10 million US, right. working for the Khalifa family and for the BIC team. Right. And that was a, a wonderful experience, great client and great project and, and a very popular racetrack. And it sounds like, again, you know, your Middle Eastern relationships, which you clearly built, you know, over decades mm -hmm. before that, they came into fruition here a bit as well, I'm sure. Right? That's right. That's yeah, absolutely, absolutely correct. Mm, and we also started that. work in places like uh, the Nordic countries. We won the contract in 2008 or nine. I forget who it was, eight or nine, uh, in a public tender for the Paris F1 race, okay. uh, which tragically got cancelled because there was a change of president just at the point they were about to start construction of the circuit. Mm. And Francois Hollande came to power on a green ticket and was promoting electric vehicles. And you can understand his conundrum. He had a, a Renault factory next to where the circuit was to have been built, which in itself was next to the River Seine. It was a beautiful location. Right. And, and that Renault factory is now where they make the Renault Zoe uh, zero emissions electric car. Right, okay. and, and he couldn't really compute this notion of having a, a super environmental argument for his electric vehicles next to F1. Yep, I can see So it, it, it got the chop. But we, we by this point, had, had managed to get ourselves recognized as being worthy of design for F1. It was about the same time that I was flown out to Korea to have a look at the site before that uh, went ahead into actual construction. That was designed by Herman. So, and, and I want to ask a bit about that because, um, you know, when I so when I think we first met uh, and we we're talking, I think it was a we had a project in Bali. I think someone was trying uh -huh. to build again a race resort in Bali concept. Um, and I remember at that time, again, I think that was really your space, right? You were sort uh -huh. of the guy to go to when it came to these sort of, you know, uh, not necessarily F1 circuit stuff, you know, and that was that a deliberate positioning, knowing that, you know, Herman Tilke's group, of course, was really, you know, they, they owned F1 uh, race circuits to some degree, right? Uh, 
or was it more absolutely right and i think there was mutual respect both ways i count herman as a friend he he, Mm. he's a genuinely nice guy as is his son carsten and we we frequently uh communicate we recognize each other in our space in the market and and i think it's worked for for the thick end of 20 years there are more people now who design circuits than there were 20 years ago um which I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but it's not something that I can influence, so it's just a thing. And, um, yes, we did intentionally position ourselves as sub-F1, despite my efforts with Bernie Eccleston to to try and secure uh, his blessing to to deliver uh, an F1 venue. It wasn't really until F1 changed ownership, Liberty became involved, and we were given a chance, for which I'm enormously grateful. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big, bad world out there. And it's a very specialist, very niche industry. And Tilka, as an engineering and architectural business, is the finest, uh, or I'd like to think now equal finest, um, was the finest uh, provider of that knowledge, that competence, that ability to deliver in a very short time frame to an incredibly high standard. The differentiator, and I, th- and I don't think Herman would disagree with me, between what we've done historically and what they've done historically is that theirs has been a race circuit-led project mm-hmm. and ours has been a venue-led project that has a race circuit in it. Right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and now... Again, uh, before we kind of move on a little bit into sort of, uh, you know, obviously what you're doing now, um, there's a couple other examples maybe where people do really get a good sense of um, the sort of circuits you guys are building um, as well as saying, how long does it take? You know, when you think of a a race circuit on its own already, right, it's it's obviously a long process. But, you know, with all the stuff which goes around it, getting approvals for the land and, you know, finding the money and God knows what. I mean, those are really long-term projects here, right? And then half the time, you know, half the time, but certain times they kind of stop and go and, right, and and, and everything changes, like you said, because of, you know, changes in governments or changing, you know, the guy runs out of money. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all of that, right? I mean, do you have a couple oh, yeah. of good examples on yeah. that? Well, to start with, I reckon that there's a one in 100 chance that an inquiry that comes to us will lead to a circuit build. Right. Okay. One so, 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 using the the analogy of, of of fairy tales, we have to kiss an awful lot of frogs. <laughs> right. Okay. Yep. That's and so, so when people approach us, we're quite adept now at. Uh, at that initial conceptualization to to help somebody understand what it is they need rather than what they want. Right. Um, if we get to the point where they commission us, and I reckon one in ten of those inquiries lead to a commercial deal where we will be paid to, to take the design forwards, right. one in ten of those projects will ultimately lead to something that gets built. It's a sweeping generalization, and some years we do better than in other years, but that's that's how it's panned out and if you look at our project codes we're up to project code 200 and something and we've built 20 something racetracks okay but if you look at our p codes which are prospect codes they're in the 2000s so um it, it each time we get that that call they then get their 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 numeric number and 
it, it, it's easy for us to trace how these projects are success or successful or not. Yeah. I think what's happening these days is that there is a much higher strike rate because we tend to be approached by people who are much better informed. The internet has changed things enormously. So there's so much more research that people can do before they start just mm -hmm. by Googling. And, and so a lot of the education, inverted commas, that we need to go through with a prospective uh, client can be done just by looking at your smartphone screen or your computer screen. Yeah. And so uh, we, we're seeing faster turnarounds, but it is still, on average, five years from first call to first track activity. Well, wow. wow. Now, again, I promise you, I would have no, I wouldn't have the patience for that. Um, that's not the type of business which uh, I think I could ever run. It would drive me nuts if I have to wait that long for every deal to finish. Uh, how do you deal with that? I mean, is it just you are of that sort of built-in men mentality and the patience that you just know it takes that long, or, or how, how how does someone manage that? Well, red wines are great help, but um, <laughs> yes. but I think that the uh, the truth is that you. You just roll with it. Um, right. I think that the parallel with what I used to do with an inquiry or a, a, a first bid that we would make to an OE like United Biscuits, and from that initial inquiry, the process of decision-making and then the process of feasibility modeling and then the process of engineering and design and then land acquisition and planning and then subsequent build – is a direct parallel with what we do with, with race circuits. And so for that reason, I was already going into the notion of Apex and my business there, knowing that these aren't pick-your-finger jobs. Right. And, and so I knew that I had to have pipeline. I knew that I had to be out there, forgive the quote, kissing those frogs, to, yeah. to, to have a multiple number of opportunities that I'm trying to juggle to get to the point where one of them would lead yeah. to enough income to justify the employment of a team that costs in cash terms about one and a half million pounds a year yeah. to do nothing. So whether they're working or not, it's still costing that. So we need that as a an absolute minimum margin to make out of the work Absolutely. that we do. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that you need an incredible amount of patience to it. So how big is the team right now? How many people you have full-time or, or sort of part of the team? Full-time, we're up to 13, nor is it 14. It's, right. uh, we've, we've taken on a couple of new folk just recently. Actually, I think it's 14 now. We've got a full-time member of staff in China. Mm. We've got two full-time members of staff in the USA. We've got part-time members of staff in Australia and okay. in Dubai. Um, and then the rest of the gang are in the UK. Right. And I guess then you bulk up and the project started to kick in, right? That, that would make sense, mm -hmm. right? It's a project-based yep. hiring then, right? Uh, That's right. Uh, I like that. Really interesting. Now, uh, before we, as I said, before we go a little further into some of the other stuff here, I, what would you consider, and maybe you mentioned one already, was Paris. Uh, what would be the, 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 the greatest track never built or the greatest concept never materialized? I would never be so arrogant as to say that Paris was going to be the best track never built because it was, by definition, relatively compromised. It was not the biggest piece of land. It was um, it was constrained by both budget and site. Uh, 
it was next to the River Saint, so aesthetically it was quite yeah, pretty. Was but in terms of a race circuit, mm, it was it was going to work. We we had we had the professor as a consultant. That was great fun. Ha- having Alan Prost giving his his advice oh, wow. okay. was, was wonderful, and and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I think he did too. Truth be told. So we certainly massaged the sequencing. And we haven't talked about the philosophy of design yet, but the sequencing of corners is something that I've learned is much, much more important than what people tend to focus on, which is individual corners. And so um, he was great at being able to understand the the mindset of a racer. But there is an interesting analogy here. If ever you ask a racing driver to draw the track they have driven on, It will never look like the track that they've driven on in plan view because they're thinking of it from the the tunnel vision perspective of what they see as a driver. Mm -hmm. And so they don't think in arcs and radii. They think in terms of G and and how long they have to apply a turning lock. Mm. And, And so there's a strange disconnect between what you actually see in plan view with an engineered track drawing and what the driver thinks they're driving. Mate, I love that. Now there are some there are some who are better than others, but that, that's the general rule. But okay. I have found it I have found it really interesting that if you ask the same question to two or three race drivers in the same championship, what would make a better passing point here? What would make a better sequence here? There's very seldom a consistency to their answer. Okay. And in fact I get I get more out of talking to the race engineers than I do out of talking to the race drivers because it's the race engineer's job to give the race driver the best car. Yeah. And so they're the ones who understand best what this dynamic object on a static environment needs to do to, to perform best. Yeah. All right, let's stay there for a minute. But I do want to come back to what, what maybe was a project you guys were working on and unfortunately never happened, which you, you know, would have been amazing. But let's stick to what, where you are now. So how do you design a racetrack, right? Where do you even start? Um, and like I said, you know, what's, you know what, is, what makes the ultimate racetrack the ultimate racetrack? You know, tell us a bit about that from uh, the great insight. Okay, well, it, it probably... I'm not going to give you a straight answer, I'm afraid, because there isn't a straight answer, because the greatest racetrack depends on what it is you're driving. And so often we'll have somebody That's approach point, us yeah. and say, um, I want to build a Formula One track. And and routinely I'll be asking them in return, why is that? Because there's this perception that an F1 racetrack has to be the best. Mm. Well, it is, but it's being designed for cars that are the best. and can do things that no other cars can do. And if you're trying to create a venue that is going to survive on the basis that the likes of you or I are going to drive something snazzy that's a road car around Mm. it, they're going to be bored very quickly if it's a Formula One track because you have to engineer a Formula One track within the constraints as defined by the FIA for an F1 car, not for a 911. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Great point. So not a straight answer, but if you wanted to see an example of a proper racing circuit, you actually need to go back in history. So before we had the guidelines to work to, before we moved into the CAD environment, before we had the the perfection that engineering can give you today, you need to look at the rough diamonds because they're the ones that are epic. My favorite racetrack? 
into Lagos. Why is it? Well, it's okay. bumpy. It's got transitions. It, it, it requires a car that's malleable enough that it can ride out those those irregularities, and you need really good traction. Especially if you want to be going fast into Senna, which is turn one, you need to be accelerating out of junk out at the bottom of the hill as best you can. And if you've got a car that's really optimized for the high speed S's down the hill on the other side, you're not going to be able to get power down and you're just going to be leaving 11s in the tarmac as you go up the hill and you're going to be out accelerated by somebody who's got proper traction. So it's there are things about classic circuits that I adore, and we t we don't copy because you can't, yeah. but we do take inspiration right. from grade change, camber change, corner sequencing that have worked on other circuits mm -hmm. and see whether or not within the guidelines and within the constraints of a site right. we can do something similar. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, so... Again, coming back to where we were earlier a bit, um, you know, you know, over the years, as I said, you had you know two thousand inquiries, two hundred of turn into something, then twenty and turn into an actual uh, racetrack, right, or into actual project, I guess. You know, which are some of the ones where you're in the middle there between the two thousand and two hundred here? Like, if they would have happened, that would have been just the most amazing location and scenic, you know, maybe or, you know, place to to race for. You know, pick one. Just one, just one. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> let's have a think. I, I, I'm very fickle. I, I tend to forget failures, and I consider one that doesn't go ahead as a failure. But yeah, but it, I, you know, we were approached. With you. We were, we were approached um, for a, a, a very, very long racetrack. They were the, the, it was Saudi Arabia again, actually, um, and it wasn't the Kadir project that is today that is going ahead. This was down in the Jeddah region, and there was an idea to, in the hills to the south of Jeddah, to, to create something that would be a, a Saudi equivalent of the Nürburgring. Mm. And we got involved with that, and that was quite exciting and would have been pretty epic. It would have made no commercial sense whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it, it, was, it was an entertaining idea. Um, the, the tracks that have been built that are, I think, properly exciting new zealand is one right. hampton dance because the grade change there is lovely right i think i think herman tilker's work for the istanbul park was inspired i reckon that's one of the finest circuit designs in in the last 20 years mm -hmm. i think the new circuit that's just in construction which is only a grade three track uh, in norway is going to be a I hope is going to be a, a, a modern classic because we were able to literally form the land to suit our requirements because wow. the whole site has been made using the spoil out of the world's largest titanium oxide mine next door. Mm. And it's set in Fjordland. So we had in wow. places the fill of this rock is over 80 meters deep, which is unheard of. But because it's a very hard rock, it's very stable and it's not going anywhere. And so we've been able to create this this very organic and quite classic-looking shape with with grade changes, with crests and dips through the corner sequences. So there's a there's a an homage to um, the corkscrew at Laguna Seca and, and and other similar corners around this track. And that's that's in its final stages of construction right now. It's going to be called the K N A Raceway or the Arctic Raceway, I think. 
I love it. You've done a trek in China as well? Have you done any particular work there? Yeah, we've done a lot in China, actually. Um, the big uh, calling card, if you like, the equivalent of our Dubai Austrome, uh, is the Zhejiang International Circuit in a place called Shaoxing, mm-hmm. which is about an hour and a half by train from Shanghai. Right. And it's a perfect example of a race resort. It has a five-star hotel. In fact, it's knocking on the door of a seven-star hotel. It's it's very, very wow. boutique, very, very smart. Um, associated next door to it is a clubhouse that has phenomenal restaurants and, and a very high-end members club. And that's connected to a grandstand above the hospitality, above the garages. And then... You live in Asia, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had, when I saw this site for the very first time, an immediate image of that blue pottery where you see a landscape painted on the pottery where there'll be a river, a mountain, a pagoda, a hill, and and, and a character. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 of course. And this site was that painting. Wow. There was this very, very steep hill right in the middle of the site. There was a river running through the site. And so the idea that I had in my head was to create this vista for anybody who's sitting either in the hotel, mm. looking out on the track, from the clubhouse looking out on the track or from the grandstand, to have this sinewy race circuit painted over that, that vista. Mm. And I think we did it. I think we got away with it. Amazing, and this is this trek is what about an hour outside of Beijing? Is that correct? Is oh no, 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 no! It's an hour and a half south of Shanghai. Oh, from Shanghai. Ah, okay, I'm mixing up with another one because one of my buddies uh, he runs he has a similar uh, resort uh, trek just outside of Beijing, uh, mm-hmm. but that's uh, yeah, yeah, thinking of a different different one here. Uh, it, it's amazing. building another one. At the, we're building another right now in a place called Wuxi, uh, right. which is close to Wuhan. Uh, which um, I think is going to be an exciting track. And that's in in partnership with Golden Port. Uh, So Jim Ye has been developing the Golden Port brand in China with, I think, three or four Golden Port circuits. And then there's a number more coming that will be franchises of Golden Port as a a Mm. brand, uh, but which will be built by local developers in in regions around China. And so we... We've finished the design of one, which is just going into construction, and we we are completing the design of a couple of others now. What would you sort of add your your sort of every typical customer, maybe not average, uh, their typical customer? Is it a property developer coming to you, or is it the municipality or state, or what, what, what's the sort of you know where, which are the most folks and and the successful ones who who uh, would come to you? Ah, that was a very well worded question. The ones that go forwards are typically the property developers. Okay. The ones that come to us most frequently are the enthusiasts. <laughs> ones that are um, municipal inquiries, I would say, are, are often successful, but not nearly as often successful as, as the property developers. You need somebody who really understands what the process is, the right. time it's going to take, and the, the opportunities that will result. Right. to be able to get 
traction, commercial traction. Commer- yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's that's why it makes sense, right? For commer- for property developers, they get their head around the long term part of it, right? How you then mm-hmm. build things around it, and and uh, you know, and you make your money not necessarily always from the track, right? It's from all mm-hmm. the other stuff around it, which you know is all the conversation we've always had was always about it, yeah. right? You know what we do with our branded real estate, you know, bringing brands into it. Um, that is always one we looked at when whenever we had that conversation, including what we had recently here out of Thailand, where you know that's not done yet. We'll come, we'll come back to you on that. Um, it's a just a beautiful idea, and and you know hopefully one day we'll have a chance to work on that together. So uh, fingers yeah. crossed. But before we fingers wrap, crossed, yeah, exactly. Before we wrap it up, I'd really want to talk about Miami F1, which obviously mm-hmm. is something which is keeping you very busy. Uh, I know, and is obviously was a big success, and as well recently announcement here that you guys are you know were awarded with it or won it, whatever you want to call it. So talk about it. Let's talk Miami, and let's talk Formula One, which in itself already sounds super exciting. It is super exciting, but it's also, as you can imagine, not the sort of thing that we can talk so much about at this point because it's still a uh, an evolving situation, sure. one where there are very important people who we need to ensure are protected. And the, the process we're going through is no different to any of the others that we have multiple times before. Mm-hmm. We've got the added... Uh, interaction with f1 which has been fascinating and and working with their their engineering team who are very clever i have to say that that's been a a wake-up call realizing just how much analysis can be done by f1 which no one else does um we're working with a super um uh what i'm looking for um efficient and and aware commercially aware client in the mm-hmm. form of the hard rock stadium and and their owners right and 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 a very competent team there as well so it's for us we we we're, we're suddenly surrounded by the a team and and that's been an exciting exercise mm. the track well the track will speak for itself i think some people have seen uh, the videos others might have seen the plan views i can't really talk to it other than to say the it's been a pleasure collaborating to to develop the the circuit within the constraints of the site within the constraints of the planning that was granted for it and um and we are now flat out on getting ourselves to the point where construction has started right um there there are uh, there are uh, contractors on site there's drainage equipment arriving on monday there's there's a lot happening and there's a lot to do and what's particularly interesting is that this is one of those incredibly busy venues that hosts music concerts football games soccer games major tennis championships and much else besides and so the choreography is so much more complicated than would be the case with a completely green field blank piece of paper starting project right right yeah that makes sense now for not you know not everyone would have seen the video or or maybe even read or or seen pictures or images of it maybe describe it just a little bit you know we're talking miami people can get their head around what is miami but it is it is it sort of street racing is it you know mixture of street and and uh, and circuit or what is I think the, you could call it a like? hybrid. Okay. You could call it a hybrid. So whilst it sits on a site that is a big, major U.S. Um, 
football stadium. Yeah. It is a completely new build circuit from start to finish that is every bit as, as competently developed, designed and built as would be the case for a permanent racetrack. Right. But obviously there are components of it that will have to be taken away annually because the site has to continue to work as a venue right. for all of these other things. Okay. So um, it's it's that itself is, is quite a challenge and there's... Um, there's but not much more I can say than that. I, I, I'd love to, but the, there no, are no, also other people who, who whose sensibilities we must respect. And, and it's 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 a good project. I think it'll be a great racetrack. So yeah, it's um it's big for us because it's that first tick in the box that says yes we can and we have done an F1 venue. Right. Do you know what? It's no different. It's the same engineering. It's the same process of design. It's the same systems that we've got and have developed for 20 years on other race circuits. Right. And the only difference, I suppose, is the audience who will observe our work and the clients with whom we are working. And we're very, very mindful of the fact that they are leading the process. We are, we're very much supporting them. Right. Got it. When is the race supposed to start, actually? I, I can't remember right now. When is the first Miami race on the list? Well, it's not officially announced yet, but it'll I be see. sometime in 2022. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, look, I'm looking forward to it. I, I love F1. I've uh, always been following it uh, my whole life. And uh, even though it has had its stale moments uh, when, you know, we have the same person keep winning over and over. But uh, I think it has, you know, it's, I, I definitely enjoy what they've done the last uh, year or two also with Netflix and, and, and other programming, it, you know, where I think it's it brought some new interesting light back into it, you know, what, what it really takes to be a driver and, and what these guys are doing in these machines. It's just incredible. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Miami becoming part of it and, of course, uh, seeing your you being part of that uh, and your design there eventually. So, oh, bless you for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's amazing there. Um, now, you know, as we wrapping it up here, and uh, that you know, I definitely wanted to keep that Miami there for the tail end. But is any other, you know, outside of Miami, is any other interesting project you guys are working on right now uh, worth mentioning? There are. Um, can I mention them? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to mention the actual location, exactly. but there is, but there is a project that we're working on right now that is in Southeast Asia that right. is going to be stonkingly good. Um, if if it goes into construction, it will be um, on an island. I can say that. Wow. All right. um, it's a, an island with a lot of topography, so the, the track is going to be sinewy and will be following that topography, right. um, and it will be a race resort. So you won't have to travel too far, Marcus, for your next kick. I love it. I love it. Now, it sounds amazing, and hopefully eventually you can tell, tell me a bit more about it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I look forward to that. And as I, said, as I said earlier, hopefully there is still one of these days we can work together too with uh, similar well, ideas to. here. For sure. But, uh, Clive, thank you for your time here. It's, it is a Saturday. I know you had your little girl with you there, so I want to make sure you get back to her. Um, but we had a good hour, uh, covered some really good ground of your interesting career, and, and now I think it makes a whole lot more sense how you got to where you are and, and the success you've had with Apex. So, uh, first of all, I wish well, you a great you. weekend there. Stay safe um, and all the best with Miami and, of course, uh, what you're doing here in Southeast Asia. Thank you, Marcus. It's always a pleasure chatting. Definitely. Have a good one. 
Take care, mate. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.